Hello, welcome to World War II, The Key Questions, answered by me, Lawrence Rees. I specialised in writing books and making television documentaries about World War II, the Third Reich and Stalinism for many years. And my latest book, Hitler and Stalin, The Tyrants and the Second World War, has recently been published here in the UK and in America. In this podcast, talking to my daughter Camilla, I'm going to give my answer to the key question, why did World War II happen? And I'm also going to reveal the surprising story of how Hitler ended up fighting what was for him, in many ways, the wrong war. So what we're going to talk about today is a bit of a big question. Why did World War II happen? It it certainly is a, a big question. And to begin with, I guess we've we have to say, what do we mean by World War Two? And of course, you could say, well, it's obvious what we mean by World War Two, but it isn't necessarily because, of course, if you're an American, you look at World War Two and you can trace it to your involvement, beginning with Pearl Harbor in December 1941. If you're a Russian, you look at World War Two starting in June 1941 with the invasion of the Soviet Union. We in Britain obviously look at it as starting in September 1939 when we and the French are drawn into the war in response to the German invasion of Poland. But you could look even further back and point to Japanese aggression in China going on into the 30s and obviously with big events going on in 1937. So there's there's lots of different dates by which you can say this conflict starts. But for the purposes of this talk... Let's focus on why did the World War start in September 1939 that involves the British and the French? Okay, so let's stick to that. Why did that war, the one declared in September 1939, happen? Well, in the short term, the cause is is pretty clear. In the short term, the cause was Adolf Hitler's decision to push forward and have the Germans invade Poland at a time when Britain and France had agreed with each other that they would confront Germany if Poland was compromised. That's the immediate cause. But if you're looking at you know medium to long-term causes, you really have to go back to the First World War and the way it ended. I think the more I've studied this history over the last 30 years, the more I've come to believe that really the First World War and an understanding of the First World War and the way it went and the way it ended is absolutely central to understanding how and why the Second World War happens and and to quite a large degree, or at least to a degree, how it's actually going to transpire that war. Many of the former Nazis I met still felt hugely angry about what had happened to Germany as a result of losing that war. And that fueled, in many cases, their desire to become Nazis, to go on, and as they sought to try and right the wrongs of the Treaty of Versailles. Treaty of Versailles, of course, at the end of the war, which caused a great deal of loss of German territory, Germans having to pay reparations, and this huge sense of of resentment in Germany. So does that mean that in some ways the Second World War was unavoidable? Or if, you know, the Treaty of Versailles had had different clauses, would the Second World War not have happened? It's a fascinating question. And of course, it's a counterfactual question. And the problem with counterfactual history is, by definition, you can't can't know. There's so many variables. I certainly think that if Hitler hadn't been 
involved. Supposing Hitler had been run over by a truck in uh, 1919 or he'd been shot and killed at the end of the war, I do think things might have might have gone differently. There still would have been this incredible sense of resentment. There still would have been this incredible sense uh, in Germany that things needed to be put put right in some way. But the catalyst for Hitler coming to power, remember, is the depression of the early 1930s. So you can say, well, OK, the Germans would still have had all these feelings. But if the uh, depression of the 1930s hadn't happened, if Hitler hadn't come to power, if the Nazis hadn't come to power, maybe things would have been different there. There's, there's so many different variables that I think it's very, very, it's very, very hard to know. But I think certainly if you're a, a Nazi and you're looking at back at the First World War, I think it creates in you and it creates in a lot of people who weren't card-carrying Nazis but supporters of the movement. And really, ultimately, I think in millions, in the minds of millions of Germans, there were a number of ways they would have looked back and their feelings would have contributed to what's going to happen in the Second World War. The first is the desire to reclaim territory, particularly to reclaim territory that they lost as a result of Versailles in which ethnic Germans are still living. This is a big, big thing that Hitler and the Nazis keep banging on about, which is these Germans, whether it's in Poland or the part of Czechoslovakia in the Sud- that's now the Sudetenland or elsewhere, these Germans belong in, in Germany, that they should come, as the phrase became, home to the Reich. They should be belong in Germany. So therefore, Hitler is, is focused, and of course, coming from Austria, as Hitler does, he sees a huge area there that's full of German speakers. He wants openly, he announces, to bring all Germans back to the one country. And that is kind of from the beginning his overt foreign policy goal. There's also, of course, I think a a, a hidden desire for revenge about the whole way the war had had gone, particularly particularly, I think with the French after the French occupation of the Ruhr in 1923 caused more resentment. Imagine the sense of humiliation Germans felt that as a result of problems with reparation payments the uh, non-delivery of goods, the French just moved in to an area of Germany in 1923. And, and this was a, a, a real sense of humiliation. That was one of the reasons, that was one of the, the, the things that fueled in part the Hitler's attempt to take over in 1923 with the failed Beer Hall Putsch. So there's that. There's also, I think, certainly amongst a number of more ideological Nazis, a sense that there's unfinished business with the Jews as a result of the First World War. I mean, we we talk in another podcast about the reasons that Adolf Hitler has this pathological, warped feelings and hatred of the, the Jews, and that one factor of that is the idea, and it's only one factor, as we, we, we talked about, but it's it's nonetheless an important factor, which is this sense that as part of a conspiracy theory, there's a myth that the Jews were, uh, German Jews were responsible for the loss of the First World War uh, through the what's called a stab in the back myth. I mean, it was it's nonsense. It's absolutely provable nonsense. It's as it's as mad a conspiracy theory as we didn't land on the moon. It's that kind of thing. But nonetheless, it's believed. It's a a, a way for many people of not dealing with the trauma of loss. So the Jews are perceived as being somehow behind the Versailles Treaty, which they weren't. They're perceived as being responsible for the German loss in the First World War, which they weren't. But, some, but nonetheless, there's that sense of unfinished business that there should be some kind of 
dealing with that. Certainly once the war begins, the Second World War begins, the very much motivational factor for a number of fanatical ideological Nazis is this sense that the Jews are somehow the enemy behind the line, that they were the enemy behind the line in the First World War, and that they will not be allowed to do wreak the damage that actually they didn't do, but nonetheless that they're accused of doing, but they're not going to be allowed to wreak that damage in the Second World War. So there's that big factor. And then finally, I think the legacy of the First World War in the mentality as it's going to be in the second is this desire to fight to the very last moment of the Second World War. It's a question I've kept coming back to in my work, which is having met a number of Italian fascists who were happy to give up in 1943 and walk away from the war, the sense of why didn't the Germans give up in 1943 when it's pretty clear the way that post-Stalingrad and the American entry into the war, it's pretty clear the way the war's going. So there's this question I focused off and on a great deal on over the last years, which is why did Germany hold out until the Red Army troops are just yards from Hitler's bunker? And I think one reason, and again, there's myriad of, myriad of causes to that, but one reason you can think of in this context is a determination that what happened in the First World War, when German troops gave up, when they were actually still on the borders of Germany, the war ended without large numbers of Allied troops in Germany. The idea was that's not going to be allowed to happen again, because the trauma of that defeat is so is so huge. Plus, if you look at Hitler's individual character, I think you see from what he's saying to people in private, what you see is that he's if he didn't already have a very strong nihilistic sense in him before the First World War, he certainly had it as a result of the First World War when he's seeing fellow soldiers eviscerated by heavy artillery in front of him, when he's when he's witnessing just immediate and sudden death. So he understands that, he takes from this, I think, an understanding that the world is a cruel, heartless place where arbitrary death can be everywhere, where the str- the only way of surviving is to be stronger than someone else. So I think all of that is going on as a legacy of the First World War when it comes to the causes and ideas and then way that the Second World War is going to work. Was Hitler then always planning to have the Second World War at some point? And does all of this anger from the First World War mean that the idea of a new war would have been popular with a proportion of Germans as a kind of do-over? Or were people not just exhausted from it? Uh, We know that there wasn't actually, when war was declared by the British and French, there's not a great deal of enthusiasm for it within Germany. I think there was a, a real sense that Hitler could pull off all this without war. If you think of what he'd done, they'd managed to occupy the Rhineland in the 30s because that had been demilitarised. They'd managed to move troops into that. They'd managed to, in March 1938, the German troops had just walked into Austria and incorporated Austria into the Reich. And there'd been this triumph from a German perspective, a perception at any rate amongst ordinary Germans, I think, in 1938, when Hitler had been threatening Czechoslovakia, And a deal had been done whereby the Sudetenland, the border area in the west of Czechoslovakia, which contained large numbers of ethnic Germans, that was essentially given to him. 
And that area contained a great deal of the border defences and uh, for Czechoslovakia itself. So there was a, quite a strong sense, I think, from peop- having talked to people who were there at the time, there was quite a strong sense that he could pull this off as well, that what happened to prevent that, I think, is really interesting and relates to why this war was going to happen as it did. And crucially, this big question of why the British and the French decide to go to war. Because, of course, you, you can argue, and I've, I've, I've talked to friends of mine, uh, academic historians, who, who actually put it another way, who say, well, actually, the war started because Britain and France declared war on Germany. Germany never declared war on Britain and France. So why, the big question, why did Britain and France declare war on Germany at this stage? And the key to that, I think, lies in this sense that Hitler's been saying, you know, from the beginning, he's going to, quote, right the wrongs of Versailles. He's going to try and unite all German-speaking people together. That's his justification for going into Austria. It's his justification for going, he says at any rate, for targeting Czechoslovakia. It's his justification for demanding land in Poland. So that's what he's saying. And I know from foreign office diplomats at the time, there was a a real sense that, well, okay, you know, it's German people. But then, come March 1939, Hitler decides to move on the rest of Czechoslovakia. The Nazis lean on the Slovaks in the eastern part of Czechoslovakia and make them essentially declare that they will be a puppet state, subservient to the Nazis. And then the Nazis themselves, the Germans themselves in March, invade the Czech lands they haven't got and occupy Prague. Now, as soon as that happens, you can't possibly say, oh, well, this is uniting all German speakers, because when you get a look at Prague, they're not, they're not German speakers. Key way of understanding why the British feel this is really the, the absolute moment of no return is in the diaries of Alexander Cadogan, who was the diplomat who was permanent secretary, head of the Foreign Office, And he wrote in his diary on the 20th of March 1939, immediately after the Germans had moved on Prague and these Czech lands, he wrote, I'm afraid we've reached the crossroads. I always said that as long as Hitler could pretend he was incorporating Germans in the Reich, we could pretend that he had a case. If he proceeded to gobble up other nationalities, that will be the time to call halt. And I think that encapsulates what's going on here, that this is the moment to call halt. So does that mean that Hitler was using this front, of, as you've described, of uniting Germans and claiming them back into the Reich as purely a smokescreen? I think it certainly was one of his aims, but as you're, you're absolutely right to call it a smokescreen, because I think that's exactly what it was. Hitler always had, or I say always, always from the moment he entered politics, he had one huge foreign policy aim, which was to create a German empire in the western parts of the Soviet Union or Russia, Ukraine and Belarus. So just one, just only one aim, well, just to create the empire. Yeah, I mean, but, but you see, you say it, it sounds incredible, I know, but he's living in a world where the British have got this giant empire all around the world, including in in India. And so it's a very big deal to him and to the Nazis because they can say, well, look, the British are operating this. I heard one, one Nazi, former Nazi said to me, look, don't say race, to me racism doesn't exist and doesn't work because look at India. You British were holding down India with a, a very small number of troops. And there's, there's all these millions and millions of India. You know, what's that if it's not racism? So the racial superiority or whatever. 
one hastens to add, that is not an accurate way of reading the history. But nonetheless, it's how they're looking at it. And there's a deep sense of envy and anger at the fact that a country like Britain has got this vast colonial empire. And what Hitler's determined to do is to create his empire, but to create it in Europe and in the western part of the Soviet Union. What's interesting about that is he openly says this in Mein Kampf, which he writes in the early 1920s, when he says Germany must turn its gaze to the east. It's openly in there, but a number of people, A, don't read it, the book, because it's such a credibly dreadful book to try and get through. And also there's a sense, again, as some other people said to me as well, you know, young politician writes stuff. Do they really mean it? But of course, absolutely, he he means it and he intends it. And so he's able to hide that for public consumption in the 1930s. I say public consumption, actually, shortly after he comes to power as chancellor in, in 1933, he has a secret meeting with his generals and lays open the possibility to them that this is going to happen, there's going to be movement towards the east. So it's clear that that's his focus, but he can hide it underneath this view of we're uniting all Germans. You've mentioned Germany didn't have an empire and also had been treated, uh, as they saw it, badly by the Treaty of Versailles. Why did Britain and France not take Hitler's demands and proclamations prior to 1939 seriously did they see this war coming or did they genuinely hope that it was just talk and that he would just stop his aggression there are some British people absolutely who are clear on this I mean famously Churchill who's out of power is warning about the whole way that Hitler's behaving but there is this sense certainly with Chamberlain who's prime minister in 1938 there's a sense that you'd be crazy to want another war you've got to remember that the first world war is devastating also in terms of loss to the British it's it's this huge wound in Europe who would want another war like that and Hitler keeps saying in interviews to foreign correspondents I was in that war why do you think I would want another one and it's such a obvious argument and such a potentially believable argument that of Many people are going to believe that. So Hitler's saying, look, I don't want another war. I've been in that war. I do not want to have another war. What I do want is justice. What I do want is these German-speaking areas back. What I do want is a revision of Versailles. And there is actually quite a lot of sympathy towards that argument. There are quite a number of people who believe that the Versailles Treaty was too harsh. And so he's he's kind of pushing at more of an open door with with that one. And there is a very strong sense that having suffered that First World War, that everything must be done to try and prevent another one, which is why Chamberlain, and people forget this, Chamberlain is hailed as an absolute national hero when he returns in the autumn of 1938 from the Munich conference where they've agreed that Hitler and the the Germans can take the Sudetenland in uh, Czechoslovakia, but that will be that will be the end of the demands. That's that's as far as he's going to go. He's hailed at this absolute hero. The sense of relief is palpable that, no, now we don't have to go through it again. It's Hitler's move then in March the following year to split up Czechoslovakia, as I say, with Slovakia as a puppet state of the Nazis and then move his own troops into the rest of the Czech lands and to Prague that absolutely marks the moment at which, regrettably, as the 
British and French see it regrettably. There's no no other alternative because this man is not just can't be trusted, but he's it's obvious that he's been absolutely lying about his intentions and is clearly immensely, immensely dangerous. So in a way, it just happens to be Poland that's the point at which this line is going to be crossed. And it's going to be crossed with Poland because of the fact that in March he's moved into into the Czech lands. So why did Hitler push on with the invasion of Poland then, knowing all of these risks? First of all, he can't know for sure that the British and the French mean what they say. I think there's clearly a, a part of him that actually believes when, when push comes to shove, they all find a way out of this. Because after all, he's not invading France. He's not targeting Britain. He's pushing east. His eyes are always looking east. So why would they? They're prepared to give him, give him the Sudetenland. What's the big problem? They might well just walk away from this or there'll be some kind of compromise arranged just like there was at the time of the Czech crisis. So I think there's part of him thinks that. There's part of him that completely understands that actually there's a very, very real chance maybe even a very strong likelihood that this is going to cause war. But you see, he's not against war, per se, at all. He understands that if he's got this immense ideological vision, this incredible dream of this amazing empire, that can only be achieved by fighting. That's why he's been pouring so much, immense amounts of money into building up the armed forces in the 1930s. So he recognises that. The twist in this is that he ends up, in the summer of 1939, organising a pact with Stalin, a non-aggression pact, so as to keep the Soviet Union out the war. And he, then he ends up fighting the British and the French, particularly the British, which is a problem, in, in a sense, for him, because off and on, for the last years, he's been trying to carry favour with the British. He admires the British very, very much. I've just been talking about the, the empire and so on. He, he, he sees Britain as a sea-based power. He sees Germany as a central European land-based power. Why can't they coexist? Why can't they come together? From their perspective, it made a kind of sense. Obviously, not from a British perspective, because that deal, a deal with the Nazis on that basis, is unimaginable. So Hitler was starting this kind of wrong war and as we've discussed elsewhere, meant that when he did invade the Soviet Union a few years later, he was fighting a war on two fronts and therefore had limited resources and was one of the reasons why the Germans then lost the war. Why did he not think about or, or did, he, did he toy with the idea of making peace with the British and French before going on to the second element of the war. Absolutely he did. He, he he didn't need to make peace with the French because he defeated the French and then he imposed the Vichy government in the southern part of France. So the French were dealt with, as he saw it. That only left the British in the summer of 1940 and he actually overtly wanted to make, said how he wanted to make peace with the British in the summer of 1940. So he did, that's exactly what he wanted. The way this war should have gone, as he saw it at that point, was peace with Britain now he's free to move on the Soviet Union. But the British, pesky British, would not make peace. Understandably so, because the kind of peace that Hitler would have accepted in the summer of 1940, as Churchill realised, would have been Churchill and the rest of the government arrested, 
perhaps Oswald Mosley put in as British fascist put in as prime minister, the handing over of the fleet, maybe. I mean, it would have it would have meant the dis- essential neutering of Britain. But nonetheless, there would have been a kind of peace. And that's what Hitler wanted. So to wrap up then, what do you think is the main thing that we can draw from all of this for future? It sounds like there's a lot of lessons in terms of the reaction to one war and the way that countries are treated and the reactions within countries as well to unfairness elsewhere but what what is the is there kind of a lesson or a warning that we can that we can draw from this for future i think there's lots but i'll end by just focusing on on one which is that a character like adolf hitler is of course perfectly capable of lying for tactical reasons but in terms of the big epic ideological visionary goals that someone like that possesses I don't think they're gonna lie and he certainly wasn't lying and it was there in Mein Kampf in the early 1920s for tactical reasons he didn't then want to go and shout it from the rooftops during the 30s but nonetheless it's still there So the really important thing is if you've got a character like that and they're allied to an epic vision, listen to what the epic vision is because they really mean it. Thank you very much.